Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. Tonight we present the final programme in our series, The Earth is Not an Ecosystem. The series was recorded at a conference called Living with the Earth. It was organised by the Interculture Institute of Montreal and held at the Arts Centre in Orford, Quebec, in the spring of 1992. The conference assembled speakers from India, West Africa, Europe and the Americas to discuss the cultural and ecological limits to development. Tonight's programme looks at alternatives to development, roads to peace and prosperity that do not involve environmental destruction or cultural dislocation. It's written and presented by David Cayley. The first five programmes in this series have explored various objections which communities throughout the world have expressed to development. These objections can be reduced to a few summary points, which are that development is a uniquely Western idea and therefore corrosive of other cultures, that development undermines autonomy and self-reliance by fostering external dependency, that development, by encouraging production for the market, preempts lands, forests, and waters necessary for subsistence, that development concentrates privilege and increases social polarization by tantalizing the many with what is actually available only to a few, that development injures social coherence and reduces social diversity, and finally, that development has resulted in almost universal ecological disruption. These points, taken together, amount to a cogent case for ending development and dismantling the institutions which claim it as their reason for being. But then the question arises, what would be the alternative? Can communities flourish without developing? Regenerate without joining a race the majority can never win? Achieve prosperity while still conserving nature? Tonight's program looks at one possible answer. A movement called Swadhyay, which has transformed the lives of millions in India without ever a thought of development. Swadhyay means literally study of the self and is the creation of a man called Pandung Shastri Atavale better known by the affectionate name of Dada, or Dadaji, and for simplicity's sake, I'll follow that usage here. Dada's teachings begin from the foundational idea of the Vedic tradition, that God is within. His innovation has been to interpret bhakti, or devotion to that God, in terms of social engagement. At the conference on which this series is based, he was represented by his daughter, Didiji, she explained to me how devotion can become a dynamic social force and how this has led to what she calls social experiments. When one starts having the feeling of gratefulness, then starts thinking that uh, how, how, what is the media or how I can show my gratefulness towards the Lord. Then he starts sparing time for him. Normally what happens is all the time we have is for ourselves and our livelihood. Then he starts sparing time at least once a week or one hour a week or say once in 15 days 
he starts sparing for him and sparing for god means go to the people uh, the sons or the children of the same lord so one starts going the, uh, going to people that is we call bhakti ferry ferry is going and bhakti is in the name of devotion mm-hmm. so bhakti ferry then one starts thinking ahead that uh, as i have got time of my own instead of giving flowers and fruits to god which is made by him uh, it's uh, it should be uh, he should be given something which i own and that is my efficiency so if i am normally what happens is if i am efficient in a specific thing i normally use it for myself my own livelihood if i am good at speaking my oratory then uh, i am an advocate but uh, then my the part of my efficiency should be given to lord and this is the basic principle which dada ji gave to people and that's how people from all the stratas all the all walks of life started with this principle and the farmers the fishermen they are now having experiments like farmers uh, traditionally we feel that uh, doing bhakti uh, one needs money because for pilgrimages going to places where god exists dada says god is within you so you don't need actually to go somewhere to see god and uh, otherwise people would say that uh, at least i should be a literate person i should read read uh, sanskrit no sanskrit and uh, recite certain verses and all then only i can be a bhakta bhakta that is devotee mm-hmm. but then dada ji gave a novel meaning to it and he said that you don't have to be anything for that but whatever efficiency you have got giving that efficiency you you, you are his uh, his own and that's how the farmers started giving efficiency and now they are doing yogeshwar krishi yogeshwar is god and krishi means farming so farming in the name of the god so they would take uh, should i explain the experiment yeah, yeah. oh so uh, they would take a plot in a village and uh, people the swadhyayis of the village once with the same thought and same understanding they would cultivate that land in the name of god because then that land is nobody's it's god's land and then they would take turn on the, that land and cultivate that land those farmers uh, they just come to that land twice a year because there are so many of them because then you you just have turns twice in a year so if i have just worked twice a year i cannot claim that it's mine or i cannot claim that it's because of me that has happened the produce belongs to nobody that means it belongs to god because they have done it in the name of the lord now god doesn't want that produce what what's god going to do with that produce <laughs> so that is distributed in the village to the needy persons the have nots i would put it the needy persons as the brothers and sisters of those farmers children of the lord and as those people also have worked there they don't feel bad in taking it as prasad prasad means something you know that you offer to god and when god gives it back to you that is prasad divine benevolence but then they don't feel bad in taking that as prasad because they are not taking it from any human being is god's prasad they are having so those needy persons are given that and that's how the people have the satisfaction of doing bhakti 
by giving efficiency, they they need not uh, study Sanskrit for that. Or they they need not be literate for that. Of course, uh, we do all agree in the literacy. But uh, to become bhakta, it's not a prerequisite. You can be a devotee or you can be God's own son without even knowing or having all these things. So villagers are doing krishi the same way uh, fishermen are doing matsyagandha where the coastal area people, the fishermen, they create a boat in the name of the Lord. They spare their money as share of God and out of that money the boat is created. No donations are taken, uh, no aids from government is taken, they do it themselves. And then that boat, they would go on that boat for work. So say 15 or 20 people a day would go and they also take turns on those boats. So even the fishermen, they take turns only once or twice a year. And then the produce, whatever is whatever comes out of it, that's used for for the needy people in their community, only the fishermen's community. Experiments like these have today brought a new peace and prosperity to many Indian communities. It began from Bombay in the 50s, with handfuls of Dada's followers going out into the surrounding villages. Gradually, the movement grew, and today it has spread into all the neighboring states where it has touched the lives of literally millions of people. When a village has all the is there in the village, they would build up a temple. Now, when I say temple, you might have a feeling that, oh, this is some religious movement or some, some religious kind of thing. But uh, nothing of that kind. Temple, in the not in the traditional sense of the term, but Dadaji says that if uh, temples were just for prayers, then prayers are to be done at home. It's a personal dialogue with God. For that, you need not go to temple and do that. So then uh, he that's what he tells, that originally when temples, the idea of temple must have started, those were socio-economic centers. So temple we need because in a village, what happens is that a person having, say, 50 acres of land, and la landlord and owner, and uh, there's one person who doesn't own a land at all. They come across two or uh, three times a day in the village. And every time they come across, they see each other. One has the superiority complex and the other one has an inferiority complex. And Dadaji says that it's no good. But telling somebody that you disown the land and be same as others, it's uh, against uh, human psychology. No, nobody would accept that. I mean, uh, one should give some solutions which are practical, down to earth, and that go with uh, human psychology. So it's not possible. So what Dadaji says is that at least there should be one such place in village where everybody is same. Or else, else everywhere, you are whatever you are. But when you meet at certain place, you are no owner, big owner, or money lender, or having two cars, or uh, what not. But when you come there, that place, then everybody is same. And this is how the social disorders, or the social problems, which normally there are, uh, they can be solved. So those were, in those times, social centers. And at the same time, when there should be one such place belonging to God, 
definitely because there cannot be any other place where everybody can be on the same platform except in front of god so when you go to him him that is god uh one starts feeling that uh, whatever i do or if i go for job or whatever i work uh, he was with me he was my partner not just a sleeping partner he was a financing partner every time so if he has worked with me wherever i went or whatever i did then uh, he should claim a share on that so he is a partner and there is a share in my income so and that should be given to him that share i cannot just uh, have that share on my name if i take it from government can government allow if government doesn't allow government has its own share then even god should be given his share so then that share is given in front of the lord then uh, say a gunny bag full of wheat or gunny bag full of uh, rice whatever my income may be that is decided by oneself mm-hmm. or if i am doing job then uh, some cash payments but that is not a charity that is share of god i mean it's not a charity given to god it's not a donation given to god it is his right and god takes it rightfully as his share so that is kept there and when that share is uh, collected of god then of course god doesn't need that for his temple or whatever so then that again is distributed among the needy people of the village and that's also in the form of prasad so then uh, dada ji's idea behind this is that if one yogeshwar krishi that's farm in the name of lord and one amritalayam amritalayam um, literally meaning amrit is nectar and home of nectar but this amritalayam for us socio economic center i would put it to understand if this kind of amritalayam and this kind of yogeshwar krishi is there in one village then there'll be no social problems no economical problems in villages and if that is all done actually we don't need any uh, wealthy people to give charities or give donations or we don't need then social workers come to the villages and do something because then they they are of one family they can solve their own problems there can be one time when we don't need government as well because uh, for welfare we can do our welfare better if these two kind of experiments are there So what kind of changes do you see in villages in, in communities uh, when people follow this way Oh there's a lot and lot of change I mean uh, if uh, if one has the background of Indian villages and Indian systems then it's easier to understand the results and uh, whatever is happening because if i tell you some results for you in this society it may be or oh, nothing but for indian system and indian culture if you have studied that then you can appreciate it better like uh, when one start uh, seeing towards each other as brothers and sisters then most of the problems the quarrels are gone in the village the outlook towards ladies that's developed each one in the village gets an identity and he he has that uh, his uh, uh, self esteem is preserved and that's developed he's empowered with uh, self confidence 
and uh, he doesn't he doesn't have the feeling or he he doesn't need to go to somebody to ask for the charities or donations now he has got a feeling that he can do everything by himself and that's the, that's the greatest achievement i feel uh in the indian customs say like ladies had so many problems like they would always be in parda you know uh, now uh, before father in law and mother in law there were times when father in law would uh, not have seen face of his daughter in law because they were always in pardas you know but now they consider them as family members they have given i mean those ladies have got the identity they can talk in a public lecture in village i mean that's a tremendous change i mean if you know the uh, prior situations what were prevailing in indian villages then you can appreciate it more than the um, i would say the downtrodden communities i don't i mean when i say downtrodden i don't feel like uh, using that word because at this moment with dadaji's thoughts i feel they are my brothers and sisters so even to quote them as downtrodden i don't feel but just to make people understand i'm using that word downtrodden communities like uh, typical i mean tribal communities say fishermen's communities which were not accepted in the elite class of society they are accepted as brothers and sisters and sometimes we feel that uh, they are really closer to us than the our real relatives so this kind of family built up when it is done uh, don't you feel it's a it's a tremendous change i mean uh, the <laughs> the fishermen the tribal communities the vegetable sellers and they, they do so so many kinds of i mean reselling the vessels and reselling the clothes and all sorts of uh, businesses they do i mean that that's fine what business they do it it was okay but they were not accepted as human beings i mean they were not treated as human beings formally which uh, they are uh, absolutely a part and parcel of swadhyay parivar parivar is family the, they are part and parcel of swadhyay family and uh, we all of us are proud that we are all one so that's the biggest change don't you feel it's a biggest change that uh, the city people going to villages having no specific monetary aim or no incentive in their minds just having nothing except love within their hearts and go to villages it's really difficult for a city person to go to villages and going in villages in india it is still more difficult you know the conveyance problems the road problems and so many swadhyay has many dimensions which it would be impossible to cover here the point in the limited context of this series of programs is that under the influence of swadhyay many indian villages have flourished in a sense they have developed but they have done so by drawing entirely on internal resources development as such has never been the aim because we work or we deal with human beings and we work at the grassroots levels uh swadhyay movement appears to be a social work secondly because dadaji uses words like bhakti that is devotion or love towards god or gratefulness for god wherever god is in between people say ah it's religious so it appears to be so but i would put it that it's a philosophical and devotional work 
because we do go to people, we do work with them, we do go to the grassroots levels. We are definitely concerned about the party. Uh, of course, with the experiments, whatever are being done, the problems of party are also solved. But we are not there to do that. We are basically here to make a person understand his capacity, make him aware of himself, make him aware with the relationship with God, and to create self-esteem and self-confidence in him. And while doing this, we have certain experiments in doing. And uh, because of that, whatever is being done, it's byproduct, I would put it. That's not our aim. It's a byproduct. Of course, all these problems are solved. And that's, that's how uh, we have been absolutely part and partial of the people who are working for development. But uh, there's a very thin line between that and this. Because our concern is for God. We spare time not for society. We spare time for God. We spare time for our own development. And while doing our own development, that uh, has, uh, say, results in all kind of uh, departments and uh, so many things. So, but that's not our aim. So that's how we are different. And we are different in the sense that uh, this is not a cult, this is not a sect. People would put it, oh, you are different than, oh, it's a, it's a sect or a cult. People call it sectarian, but it's not. People call it religious, but it's not. It's a family. A family, and the head of the family is God. And our whole organization, again, organization to make you understand, uh, our whole organization or movement, whatever you call, it runs as a family, a literal family. So I feel it's uh, the methodology is different, the philosophy is different, the structure is different, but the results are all same. And when the motive and structure and methodology is different, it is different. DDG, thank you. Oh, thank you so much, uh, having taken interest in our movement and the work we are doing. And I'm really proud. And uh, initially also I told you yesterday as well that uh, it's really very difficult to explain Swadhyay in such a short period of time because uh, uh, and every time I have got attention that I'm representing that bigger movement and uh, you're going to ask me certain questions about such a movement where there are millions and millions of people working and our Swadhyay is. So if at all anything is left, it's not uh, that whatever I told you is Swadhyay, but Swadhyay is much more than what I told you. So it's seeing is believing. So I extend <laughs> my invitation to you and your friends to come to India and see whatever you have heard and see much more than whatever I have told you. asked me this question, he said, do you believe in God? I was very astonished by the question. I was not prepared at all because nobody asked you this question. 
And then I, I really don't know sometimes whether I could answer this question because the G I believe in, you know, is, is very different from a lot of G's called gods or something like that. And uh, so when, uh, when he asked me and I had to answer, uh, then uh, I looked at him and I said, uh, you know, um, if <laughs> Khomeini had asked me this question, I would have said no. I mean, uh, because I, I don't believe in that thing, you know. I, I don't believe in, in a vengeful, in a, in a monstrous uh, <laughs> uh, thing that, you know, comes and he, here is to correct people's at, attitudes, to tell them what to do or not. So I told him if, if uh, he, would ask, he would have told me this, I would say no. But uh, the, the way I've seen you defining it, I think um, I would say yes. And he was very pleased. He came to me and he said, then we're brothers. This is Majid Ranima, a former Iranian diplomat, cabinet minister, and UN official, whose career in the development field was the focus of the previous program in this series. He first met Dada in Bombay in the late 80s, at a time when he had renounced his faith in development and become interested in alternatives. Swadhyay attracted his notice because it seemed to have grown entirely from its own roots. He got to know Dada and found out something of Swadhyay's history. He learned that as a young man, Dada read widely in Hindu philosophy and scripture, but was much preoccupied with the question, why has all this spiritual wealth failed to solve India's crippling social problems? Eventually, he came to see the solution in a rededication of the two days a month a devotee owes to God as bhakti. He says to these uh, 19 first people who uh, together had uh, worked with him, you know, in the creation of Swadhyay, he says to them, uh, look, it's obvious that God is within every person and God doesn't need us uh, to go to the temple and, and pray for him. So uh, let's try to do, to do what God wants us to do because he needs us. That's why, you know, He's within us. So if instead of going two days to the temple every month, let's uh, take, let's say, accumulate this for six months. So we'll have 12 days, about two weeks. And let's go to the villages and find what we can do for the people. But don't intervene. And that's, you know, my interest in that was that the whole principle was that they don't intervene. So these people get into four groups of four or five, and they... Uh, they go for two weeks to different uh, villages. And then he says to them, please don't have any message to them. Just say the, the, the basic message of our belief, which is there is a God within every person. You have to realize that. The rest will come automatically. And this is how it happened, you know. Uh, one of one of the people out of these 19 told me, you know, we did it the first year, but we thought we needed that, well, I mean, that couldn't succeed. I mean, what's this point of going to a village and, and just say nothing? Especially the first the first time, the villagers were very suspicious. What are these people doing? What, the, what do they want? I mean, they, they say they don't want anything. They just want to, you know, the, the, the God within me wants to talk to the God within you. That's all. And they, you know, they were suspicious because they said either they want something political or it's a new cult and so on. And then uh, at the end of the year, apparently Dada says to them, that's good, let's, let's try this uh, next year. 
And here, you know, there is the notion of time that's very different from what uh, you have in the North. Uh, they took their time, I mean, three, four, five, six years. I'm just doing the same thing every, every year. And, and gradually, these, in the same villages, people were interested and in saying, well, now really you're nice people. So tell us what to do. This was their first reaction. You're good people. We know we are ignorant. We are peasants. You told us so many interesting things. You know so many things even about our own culture, about ourselves. So what do you, I mean, tell us and we'll do it. And they refused, absolutely, on the ground that you have to, to take an initiative. Then if you take an initiative, because you know better your situation, we will be able to, to interact. And this is how it happened. You know, in the early 50s, these 19 people started, it took them about 10, 12 years to become something like 2,000. And then suddenly, you know, this mushroomed, because they were doing this together this time. You know, many people were marching on one single village, you know, coming from different areas. Then again, you know, the, 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 their numbers grew and grew. And when you see what they have done, is absolutely tremendous. Because they have, uh, they have kept to certain basic principles. If you have a God within you, you don't need anybody else. Therefore, self-reliance is not a consequence of an ideology. It is intrinsic to the very uh, I, the, the, the belief that there is a God within you. Because if you, there is a God within you, of course, who, who, who else do you need? Then uh, they, you, don't need, you don't need any money from anybody. You don't need any help. You don't need any assistance. Because you have to listen to the God within you. And uh, so they didn't, they didn't receive a penny from anybody. And yet, uh, if, you, if you go there, you'll see that the whole economic paradigm uh, becomes shaky because they have made a lot of money. They have created a lot of money out of no money. I mean, they, they, somebody said their assets could be um, could exceed one billion uh, uh, rupees now. You know, they have big farms. They have big places. You know, where they have uh, done a lot of things. All the work of these two days. Uh, you know, in the in the month, the work of their bhakti, and they call that the impersonal wealth that belongs to God. Swadhyay is both a revival, a return to religious roots, and a profound innovation. Like Gandhi, Dada has used his tradition to purge his tradition of its unworthy elements. For example, he has worked against untouchability and the caste system, but always on prior religious grounds. One year in the Diwali festivities, which is, you know, the big feast in India, where everybody goes and presents uh, others with uh, uh, gifts. He said, Why, uh, have we thought that you know, one Swadhyay village, as a village, would go and give gifts to another village? Let's try this. People found this a good idea. But you know, again, he had this thing in mind. So after the people accepted, apparently he had said, but, you know, a village is not a person, so how can a village go and, and do this? So we have to see who in that village will go and stay with who in the other village. So let's draw lots. For instance, you, David, you will go and, and give your present to John or whoever it is in that village. And obviously, according to the probability law, you could be a Brahmin and the other one could be a, an untouchable. 
Now here, the same God who was within you had indicated that you should go, and this time go, really go and stay a whole night with, with an untouchable. Not only eat from the same plates, but be with him, with that family. And this is what happened. And it seemed to be absolutely an extraordinary thing. Because then, you know, for, for a whole, I mean, for two th days, you had this entire mi new mixture transcending the idea of classes and people living that and finding that this was really a beautiful thing to do. So this thing, for instance, is, is not something that is part of the developmental uh, uh, objectives. or uh, It is something that is, goes much deeper. And I've seen the same type of thing I was telling you about this village in one family, how the relationship between men and women had changed in, in a, such an hierarchical and such a sort of structured society like India. I really was amazed to see in that house that the woman was running the house. She showed me the whole house. And then when, at one moment, I said to her, uh, jokingly, I said, before the Swati I came in, I heard these people, you know, I mean, here, men were not very nice with women, and they were beating them. Is that true? And uh, the, by the way, here, um, uh, uh, the, the, the man was standing behind uh, the woman, and the woman was all the time talking to me, not the man. And at that moment, and I said, was um, your husband, I mean, was, was he beating you sometimes? And here, you know, I had this beautiful Indian woman, you know, uh, didn't, didn't want to answer. I mean, it was, I, th I think it was a f tremendously, you know, tense moment. Uh, she, she just preferred not to answer. But here, the man took over. He looked at me. He took his wife's uh, sari and he brought it down and he showed me whole scars, you know, on the, uh, on, on the woman's shoulder. And he said, yes, you know, I did all that. I did all that before I was a Swadiyai. And, and, and I, you know, I really was so moved. And I, t I told him, but uh, do you do it now sometimes? <laughs> he said, of course, no, you know, how could I do it? How could I do it? But this is the type of thing we were doing because we didn't realize, you know, that uh, we, we didn't realize these things, you know. We, we were doing that because we, we didn't, we, we had not listened to the, to the God within us, you know. And then I told the woman, how, how happened that, you know, this house is, is much better than before? I mean, I, because apparently, the, the, uh, the, uh, I, I hadn't seen the house before, but I had heard this was not a very prosperous village. Did you have new earnings and so on? And I, I found that really it was not so much that, the question of earnings. And she explained to me that f almost 40% or half of the money that his, her husband was uh, earning would go to alcohol, to things that were go go out of the house. And um, uh, through a change, uh, this sort of spiritual change that had happened, a whole, uh, you know, n new management of, of things had taken the place of the, of the old times. So the, the, the differences, you know, what has, what has happened is, is cannot, be, cannot be really defined in, in, in concrete terms. But when you go into a Swadhyay village, you immediately find you know, that things are much cleaner. People have a different cooperative mood. And that is where you see that there is, 
Everybody participates. Everybody participates. This man comes, who, who was one of the Swadhyayis, comes to Delhi um, and we were having our lunch on the lawns in our centre. He talked about Swadhyaya. I heard, thought it must be some kind of a sect or a cult or something of that kind, you know, traditional religious thing. He said uh, the, something to the effect that the proof of eating, the pudding is in eating. So, so I said, OK, I'll come. R.K. Srivastava is a sociologist at the Center for the Study of Developing Societies in New Delhi. The encounter he just described happened in 1986 on the eve of a big Swajai gathering in Allahabad, a pilgrimage center in northern India. He went there and was astonished by what he found. In a place legendary for its chaos and incivility, a tent city of some 400,000 people had been created in just a week. And in this temporary township, as Srivastava calls it, he found only order, courtesy, and calm. When I peeped in these sectors, you know, in this township, spotlessly clean, antiseptically clean, and not a single policeman in sight. So much so that I saw the peep, there was no vendor, and there were piles of oranges. People were picking and just putting some money, you know, what was the fixed price. Nobody to supervise anybody. So, and then two or three things that I eavesdropped literally were so touching, so electrifying, you know, that I said I must stay steady this moment. And so it was summertime when I could get some days off from my work. And I went to their villages. So in that, about a month-long trip, to various places where their work is going on because I had I was reading those books, so I knew where the work was going on and where it was not going on. So I had two sets of uh, to compare, you know, a Swadhyay village and a non-Swadhyay village, a Swadhyay person and a non-Swadhyay person. So the the difference is so glaring, and so the impact is so immediate that then I decided to study at length. So I'm right now in the midst of uh, uh, writing a book on the movement. In the course of his research, R.K. Srivastava has noticed again and again the extraordinary effectiveness of Swajai activities. Swajais, for example, plant trees, often in quite inhospitable places. But the results are strikingly different from what is usually accomplished by government-sponsored social forestry programs. The government of India has a policy there is a lot of wasteland, a lot of land which is so degraded, so spoiled that it is unrecoverable. So the government of India has a wasteland reclamation scheme. So anybody or any body of people who want to reclaim that land and make it fertile again, they are given a long lease, 100 year or perpetual lease, 
plots of land where a blade of grass would not grow, rocky, barren, and that kind. In this part of the world, Gujarat, Maharashtra, because it's on Dakkan Plateau, there's a lot of such land. So they would take it, 50-acre plot, 40-acre plot, you know, huge lands. Then they would work, you know, thousands of them. They call it Shram Bhakti, which means toiling for the God, you know. When they devote their labor out of love for God, once a fortnight or once a month. So villagers and town people, they may be doctors, they may be chartered accountants, they may be company directors, they may be an illiterate worker working in a textile mill in Ahmedabad or something like that. They would religiously go once a fortnight and work for 24 hours. And during that time they are called pujaris, which means priests. So they would do and slowly upgrade the land. After two, three years of upgrading the land, on one fine day, they would bring lots of saplings, 10,000 of them, or 15,000. Within five minutes, the entire orchard land or woodland is planted. Then, now these are big plots. A village, just one village cannot tend them. So there are 20 or 25 villages and neighboring towns, people would be coming and lots will be drawn. So one may get a chance to serve for only 24 hours in the entire year. Mm-hmm. Now each person is allotted a number of trees. He has to tend it like a priest would take care of church, you know, because he sees this as a temple. And now there is, these are drought-prone areas of India. And there are a lot of social forestry programs in India where the casualty rate of saplings is as high as 80 to 90 percent. Here not a single tree dies, not a single sapling dies. I've seen one in the, in the run of Kutch area, you know, which is a, absolutely impossible you know, to survive the bl- hot wind blizzards, like if you have a snow blizzards, and the moisture just evaporates in no time. So they had a very creative use of a bamboo stick, you know, where four stakes would be dug in the ground, and a gunny sack, which you get in India in plenty, you know, a curtain of gunny sack would be stuck around that. And that would be wetted, so that when it becomes moist and it's wet, then the moisture is provided to the sapling. So the tender sapling in the in an area where there was hundreds of cattle were at one time dying, mm-hmm. these trees have survived. It's a, and now, after four years when I went, there were beautiful plants of about six feet or seven feet high of coconut palm and you know, of mango groves. And the principle is the same as you have in Yogesha Krishi or in Matsyagandha and so on. It's a, not a social forestry program, but, you know, it's something else. But uh, these, they have now about 14 or 15 of them in uh, Maharashtra and Gujarat. Through its remarkable successes and growing numbers, Swajai has begun to become increasingly visible to the rest of Indian society. But so far, Srivastava says, Dada has guided his movement strictly along its own path, steering clear of the entrapments of political power on the one hand and religious orthodoxy on the other. Orthodoxy 
cannot catch him on that because he he does not confront them he circumvents them um, and uh, i think it's a beautiful strategy in the sense uh, you know if you do not want to get caught in the petty uh, disputes uh, over constituencies he beautifully circumvents all this and they cannot neither the orthodox uh, can catch him uh, or fault him uh, for what he is doing uh, nor uh, the politicians because a person who is uh, having a following of about 10 million people anywhere you know it's uh, more than the size of uh, many european countries you know if you have that kind of power even the politicians would you know would be tempted to either infiltrate or sabotage or you know capture uh, so he has been very careful about that rk srivastava has devoted his scholarly career to the study of development he has studied the gandhian movement in india and the green movement in europe by the time he encountered swajai he was disillusioned with movements which build themselves as alternative but which he thought were actually offering the same old paradigm in a new package but dada he says has taken a different approach aiming above all for a change from within my feeling is that he feels that no development nothing everything would come to futility unless and until the man is changed and the best way to change man is to use what is already there but give it new interpretations so the traditional interpretation of very ritualistic kind of devotion you know ringing peeling the bell and going and offering fruits and plants to god and sweets to god and you know yeah. uh, having all kinds of observing fasts and so on use that you know uh for something very very different something very novel so he started manipulating symbols traditional symbols and giving it new meanings or reinterpreting uh, the old symbols and uh, after it appealed to the minds of people he used that to achieve whatever kind of i don't think he had the very neat blueprint in, when he was in 30s that this is the kind of thing he would have but i think it's a keeps on evolving it's you know ever growing kind of thing uh, because it's not a movement as she said <laughs> very correctly but uh, i don't know I, i for want of a better word one can say that it's more like a stream or you know like onion peels <laughs> or something like that you know it keeps on growing or new petals coming on a flower all the right. time you know uh, so every one or six months or after eight months when i go i find something very new you know it's it it is, continues to grow and evolve from the uh, local needs of the people you know or the local conditions and the kinds of expertise they have the kind of thing that they want to do uh, things and then it's woven in a particular pattern that is what is happening so what is the most important thing what i think he thinks the back of all this is that nothing can change the condition of mankind unless and until the man man himself is changed and when i say man i mean to say also mm-hmm. woman kind and i am not a swadhyayi i am uh, but i'm uh, i find that this is a very viable alternative and if anything can succeed 
perhaps this is the thing because i have been in development problematic business now for about two decades if anything seems to be succeeding it is this and the ngos do not seem to be succeeding the government has miserably failed and uh, if i see any ray of hope this is the kind of thing call it by whatever name you want to i know you call it swadhyay but if it it's known by any other name and if we can do this kind of things i would be you know gratified because not only as a scholar but as a human being my heart is that the world should change for the better <laughs> and if uh, this kind of change is performed by anybody in the most participatory manner i'm all for it I have not presented this brief sketch of Swadhyay because I consider it to be in any sense a typical grassroots movement. On the contrary, as I hope I've made clear, I don't think there is or could be such a thing as a typical grassroots movement. People's initiatives are inherently diverse, just as they are. Swadhyay originated in one man's burning question. In time, its very success will probably engender new questions. But for now, it shows one way in which regeneration can occur without aid without animation and without reference to any body of foreign ideas whatsoever this series has presented the views of a diverse group of scholars and activists whom i met at a conference on the cultural and ecological limits to development in the spring of 1992 i found amongst them a rough consensus which in conclusion i would summarize as follows every culture every civilization so long as it has its tap root in living soil exists within its own horizon it has its own space its own time its own possibilities its own sense of what constitutes nature but today many minds are in the grip of a vision of unity the image of earth alone in space decorates t-shirts and sells sneakers we have world trade world order and a world bank development is another of these unitary dreams what was once only a visionary gleam in the eye of the enlightenment the idea of the unity of mankind has become today a system of rule and lots of people seem convinced that this rule is good and necessary that we ought to manage planet earth but who is we and what is being managed only our lowest common denominator a species and an ecosystem the great majority of people in the world do not belong to this imperial we and actually are mocked by it they cannot profit from world trade or benefit from world banks they belong to a place on which they depend a place whose dimensions are experienced and imagined in terms peculiar to that place if they lose that the majority can hope for only a shadowy and marginal existence in the ecological imperium of the managed planet for a long time the west has felt itself to be the bearer of a universal destiny but even after the 40 years of the development crusade launched by harry truman in 1949 the majority are still not included 
and increasingly it is only the ideologically impaired who can convince themselves that they ever will be. What this majority requires today is not development, but a truce in the war on their way of life and a chance to regrow from their own roots. That is the consensus of the scholar-activists I have presented in this series, and that is why, for most of the people, most of the time, the Earth is not an ecosystem. On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to the sixth and final program in our series, The Earth is Not an Ecosystem. It was written and presented by David Cayley. Technical Operations, Lorne Tulk. Production Assistants, Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson. We would like to thank Kalpana Das and her colleagues at Interculture, the people on whose work this series was based. A transcript of tonight's program is available for $5, or $20 for the entire six-part series. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Ecosystem, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. And a collection of David Cayley's earlier programs on ecology is available as a book from James Lorimer and Company. It's called The Age of Ecology, and it's available in bookstores across Canada. Ideas is off for the summer, returning on Labor Day. But I'll be here Monday evening with Ideas in the Summer with more of A's for Aardvark, an anthology of music and words, each program based on a single letter of the alphabet, an amiable encyclopedia of sound. I hope you'll join me. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.